All right. Well, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, nothing else due this week. Yay. Well, except for the lab that we're going to do a little later, but that's in class. That's a little bit different. Um, next week, at this point, I'm still leaving the homework as due on October 2nd. I don't promise that won't be pushed off to the beginning of the following week. It really depends on what I get through today and what I get through on Monday, how close we are to finishing up, essentially, the chapters we need for the exam. So if we end up a little further behind, the homework will be delayed, but I'd rather have you think it's due earlier and then rather than depend on it being due, uh, uh, rather, and push it a little later than the uh, other way around. So that way you hopefully get a start on it. We've already finished chapter five. If we don't finish chapter six today, we'll be almost completely through chapter six. And then we will start on 15 and 16. Either way, we'll be starting on 15 and 16 on Monday, whether we finish chapter six and then start on them or just are really ready to start on those. So we should be all ready with all of those for the, for the coming week. And again, the exam here, barring something, I really don't want to change that. That gets the exam in before the short break, our, our winter, our winter, our, not our winter break. How about our fall break uh, in between uh, the classes? So we don't meet on it. We, we lose a Monday uh, class day there. So just a little bit about what's coming up, homework two, uh, then the second solar observations, and again, that's the second submission of solar observations. If you're only turning in two, you're behind. Um, I'd hope at this point you're getting up to the four, maybe five-ish region is about roughly what I'd, ex what I'd expect by the 7th of October. So you've still got you know, a week and a half, almost two weeks to be able to get a few more. Um, but that's about what I'd be looking for. If you're just turning me in your second, your first one in, your second one there, you're going to be running a little bit behind. The good thing is don't worry if you're running a little bit behind because the observations are part of the project, but they're not, the, they're not going to destroy you. So if you only get five observations, you can still do fine on the project. So I just don't want you to feel like you're stressed that you have to get it because I know people have classes and work and everything else. So 10 is the goal. 10 is what you'd need for full credit. But getting nine isn't going to crush your grade. Getting eight isn't going to crush your grade. I've had people do it without making any observations. And you can still, you won't get a perfect grade, obviously, on it, but you can still do reasonably well. And then I've already mentioned the exam coming up. We'll cover the next three units, chapter five, six, and then jumping out to 15 and 16 on the sun. Questions? Let's go ahead and clear that. Come on. There we go. And start with our picture for today. This is the Pelican Nebula. I don't know. I don't get, I don't get a pelican out of it. You can use your imagination. Maybe you can. Um, that's just the name. Somebody happened to see a pelican in it sometime, and the name has stuck. Uh, this is an example of an emission nebula. So we're getting ready in our next section to start talking about stars, we're going to talk about our own sun first. This is the type of region where stars are forming. So it kind of ties in well with what we've just talked about and what, we're, what is coming up in that this is a, a region of star formation and it's got a couple different areas. It's got a lighter area here which is hotter, higher temperature, meaning the particles are moving fast. So here it's really energized, it's a diffuse gas, it's really hot, and a diffuse gas gives off an emission spectrum. Hopefully you remember that from the last chapter. So if we actually look at this area and take a spectrum of it, we would get just specific bright lines. And in fact, that's how this image is taken. Normally you take a picture, you point the camera, and you take all the light coming from it. In this case, it's taken through filters. And those filters are very narrow. They only let through specific wavelengths. So one you would use is that specific red wavelength of hydrogen. So you take the picture in that. You also take the picture in, in this case, wavelengths of oxygen and sulfur that they give out. And then you combine those together to make the image. So in this case, the red does not necessarily represent hydrogen because it's a false color image. It's just put together based on looking at those three specific wavelengths that, is, that are being emitted there. So it's a way to be able to study the emission. You're not, so you're not seeing, if you actually looked at this and could look at this the same way through a telescope, 
it wouldn't appear exactly the same in terms of colors. So we do see some kind of emission there. So this is the region where stars have kind of finished forming. There are some bright stars scattered around there. They're pretty much done. They've, be they've become full stars, and we'll talk about that in just a, just a couple of weeks and how stars form. And they are now shaping the nebula. Their energy causes it to glow. Right? There's no stars, no energy there. There'd still be gas and dust there. It's just invisible. If you don't excite the gas, it just sits there, and things like hydrogen gas or oxygen gas, we know, are nice and clear. We see right through them. So we'd see right through them in space if they're not being energized to glow. So that's why we see this region. Down here, you kind of have a part of a transition zone between the hotter region and the colder region. So colder area, again, just means the particles are moving slowly. Here is a darker area where stars are also forming. These ones have formed. Here's kind of a middle region in the process, and these are the ones that are just at the very earliest stages. So it's a dark area because there's no stars that have formed yet to energize the area around it. And it's just a big gas and dust cloud. Gas we can see through, dust we can't. Dust is, a, is slightly bigger particles, and it does absorb the light. So when you see the darker regions over here, there's actually a lot of material there, and that's the material that will form stars. And I say this will change because if you came back in 100,000 years or a couple hundred thousand years, this area would end up getting cleared out. The intense energy of those stars would slowly push the material away. This region, that's the transition area, would move here, and you'd have new stars that have formed here now visible, and you'd begin to have this would look like the transition region, and you'd start to have stars forming, and it would continue. The process continues. So when the star formation starts in one place, it doesn't occur all at once. It's not just all stars, but you start it in one area, and then it kind of travels through this great big cloud of gas and dust in space. And we'll go through all of this in much more detail in the coming weeks when we start talking about stars. So, questions? All righty. Well, let's go ahead and back to telescopes. And I was just getting to the some of the limitations on, oops, not that one. I was just ready to start talking about some of the limitations of telescopes when I stopped last time. Um, there are some limits. A couple of these apply very specifically to refracting telescopes, if you recall. Reflecting telescopes use a big mirror. Refracting telescopes use a big lens to gather the light. So there's something that gathers the light there. In this case, we have a lens. And a lens, if you remember from the last chapter, we had prisms, right? Had a little prism that came to a point, and it split the light into, into the colors of the rainbow. That was great, and it was important because we could see all the colors, we could see a spectrum, and that allowed us to learn certain things about astronomical objects. The problem is, in a lens, the top of this is just like a prism, and this part is just like a prism, meaning that the light coming through it is bent differently. So the blue light is bent a little more, the red light is bent a little less, and if you're trying to get to a focus, focus the image, the red light comes to a focus here, the blue light comes to a focus here. So where do you put your eye? Do you want to look at the red light? Do you want to look at the blue light? They're not at the same spot. You can't look at both of them simultaneously. You can't put your eye here and here at the same time. So this is what we call chromatic aberration caused by the color. Uh, color chromatic for color, the colors are not coming to the same focus. So if you're using a refracting telescope of any kind, goes back to Galileo's telescopes, inexpensive refracting telescopes you might buy, or large professional refracting telescopes. This is one problem, is that the light does not come to the same focus. There are some fixes to this to help it. You can put other lenses. You can use another lens here that would then adjust. You can make adaptions and try to get some of this to the same, but it never gets rid of all of it. So any refracting telescope is going to have this issue. 
You can minimize it, but you can't get rid of it completely. And if you've ever looked through a refracting telescope, if you focus it on something like a bright star, you'll usually see that there is either a blue halo around it or a red halo around it. You can bring some of the light to a focus, but other is it is blurry, so you're going to see it as a blurry uh, halo around that, that object. Same thing, if you focus on the blue, you might see a red halo around it. So any refracting telescope is going to have this issue. The other difficulty with refracting telescopes, couple difficulties, one is a limited size. How big can you make a lens? Well, the largest refracting telescope ever built has a one meter lens. So about a meter-ish, about the size of a meter stick, estimate. That's a pretty big lens. Now, that's a big hunk of glass, too. That's heavy. And if you're holding a lens, you can only hold it around the edges. I can't put anything in front or back of it to support it. So, and this is not just a real thin lens, right? It's, a, it's going to be pretty thick. And it's, I don't remember how big it is, but if it's six, eight inches, that's a hunk of glass. That's heavy. That is a heavy piece of glass that you're trying to support just around the edges. You know, like, you're, like if you wear glasses, you can only support them around the edges. Or they don't do you too much good if you put something behind to try to support them. So if I wanted to support this lens from behind, I'm blocking the light. I'm blocking some of the light. So you have some difficulties in building very large lenses. The largest one was a meter. That was completed back in the late 1890s. There has not been a larger one built since. Could we? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we could make a bigger We could make a bigger one now. We might be able to make something that's, I can't stretch my arms two meters apart, but, you know, two meters or something larger. Compared to some of the telescopes I'm going to be showing you, that's still tiny. The Hubble Space Telescope, which doesn't have a gigantic mirror, is about two and a half meters in size for its mirror. So in terms of why we haven't built one, it's just, a lot of it is that you can't really match what we can do with mirrors. And one of it is that your know, mirror, I, I can support it from behind. All I need is the front surface clear because light is bouncing off of it. I don't need light to pass through it. So in a lens, light needs to pass through in order to be able to see it. So these are both some of the reasons that refracting telescopes are still used, but not as much. And we haven't built a large one. It's been well over 100 years since we built a large refracting telescope for astronomical purposes. Uh, the other one down here that I mentioned is seeing. This, this doesn't apply just to refracting telescopes. This applies to every telescope. And one of the problems with telescopes is that we're stuck having to look through the atmosphere. Right? We like our atmosphere. It gives us oxygen. We can breathe. We stay alive. But in terms of looking at astronomical objects, the waves that come in are all nice and beautifully straight coming from space. Right? They're traveling through space. There's no distortions. They just travel right through it. And they're all nice and smooth. You can get really detailed uh, information from them. However, then you get the atmosphere, which kind of jumbles everything up. And now you've got all these distorted waves that come down to the telescope. If you've ever looked out at night and watched the stars and see them twinkle, that's this. That's the atmosphere. Stars don't twinkle. If you're out in space on the moon, you look at stars, they're just glowing steady. They do not change. The twinkling is the atmosphere, is this kind of thing causing the stars to actually jump around and change their position very slightly. Now, you're not going to see them jump all over the sky, but right around where they are, they're actually quickly changing position on a very small scale that you wouldn't be able to notice, and that's what we see as twinkling. And astronomers will call the effect the seeing. How good the seeing is, is how nice and clear the atmosphere is. And if you look at the stars, if you watch when they twinkle, you tend to see it worse on a hot summer night. They're jumping all over the place. The atmosphere is really turbulent. If you go out and look at the stars on a cold January night, they're still twinkling, but not near as much. And that's just because the atmosphere in January, I and mean, astronomers love those nice cold nights. Those aren't the ones that we just want to go sit out and glance at the stars. Right? If it's getting down close to zero, you probably don't want to be outside. But in terms of how nice and smooth the atmosphere is, that's great. And that's what we call the seeing. So what astronomers want is the best seeing. So where is the atmosphere least tur turbulent? And we're going to look at that 
in terms of you know, where, do we wanna, where do we put telescopes? Where are we going to put these telescopes? So one of the things that we do, do, uh, do now is to uh, use what we call active optics. Again, a technological advance that we could do that wasn't possible 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Instead of building these really thick mirrors, going all to, this, is, this is modern, this is going all to reflecting telescopes now. So we're talking about mirrors. Telescopes that had big mirrors would have this big hunk of glass as a mirror. Well, could be. Some of these big mirrors, they could be you know, a foot thick or more. That's still a lot of glass, but you can support it from behind. You can put all your material behind to hold it and turn it and keep it in place. However, now what we do, instead of building those big thick mirrors to keep them nice and stable, is we build thinner mirrors. We build real thin mirrors or even segmented mirrors, mirrors that are put together from smaller pieces that are then computer controlled. Right? We tend to take computer control for granted, but you know, 50 years ago, computers were what? Massive things that filled rooms. It was not something very easy to do. Much beyond that, you know, we barely had much in the way of computers. Go back 60, 70, 80 years, you, know, you had to have your mirror able to hold up as you turned it around and pointed at different things in the sky. But now, you can use computer control. And one of the things that we do with modern telescopes is attack the galaxy, shoot a laser out at the center of our galaxy. No. We're actually we are shooting a laser out. That is a laser coming out from the dome not heading towards the galaxy, heading towards the Earth's upper atmosphere and exciting the atoms up there, causing them to glow. What we can then do is observe this artificial star that we make in the sky. We excite them. We know exactly what that object is supposed to be like. What should it look like when it comes back, light comes back down? Any distortions that we see in it are caused by the atmosphere. Well, Computer can calculate what those distortions are, invert them, and then deform the mirror. So instead of a nice smooth mirror, you've got a mirror that's deformed in various ways. It's not regular, but it's deformed to take into account the atmosphere. So you can take a blurry image, because the atmosphere is jumping around a lot, and change it into a nice clear image. So when you take that picture of something out in that direction, you knew what the atmosphere was like, take that all into account, and get an image that is much better than you would otherwise be able to get here on Earth. So the atmospheric turbulence really limits the resolution. If you don't use this, it really, in terms of resolution, it doesn't matter if you have a five or six inch telescope in your backyard or a two, four, five meter telescope and a professional on an observatory on a mountain. Yeah, I'm on a mountain, you're gonna get a little, you're above the atmosphere, you're above a lot of atmosphere, you're gonna get a little bit better seeing. But in terms of the resolution of the atmosphere, it's really bad. It really affects it. So things like this are extremely important for being able to get highly detailed, high-resolution images. And as telescopes get larger and larger, that becomes more important. If you remember, uh, power of the telescope, resolving power, depends on how large the telescope is. Well, the atmosphere kind of ruins that for us. The atmosphere says, well, it doesn't really matter how big your telescope is, I'm going to scr scramble up all your images anyway. This is kind of taking in the atmosphere into account and being able to get rid of it, which is one of the reasons, of course, that we put things like Hubble up to get up above the atmosphere. All right, so let's look at a few telescopes here. I want to show you a few of the larger ones that have been built um, over the last few years. Going back a little bit, this was the largest telescope um, in the world, for uh, about three decades. It was built in 1948, the Mount Palomar uh, Observatory out in California near Los Angeles. Uh, it was completed. It was a 200-inch mirror, five meters across. So, you know, five meters, what, about 15, 16, 16, 17 feet across. So very large mirror. That's actually down in here on the very bottom in the image. So we have the mirror down there. The rest of this is just structure to hold this mirror. Now, this is long before the active optics and stuff that I talked about just previously. So 1948, what were computers like? Well, there really weren't any. It didn't have any kind of transistors or anything at that point. 
So this was a gigantic, thick hunk of glass, and this is all the material used to, used to move it. So you have a great support structure there to hold it. You have all of this is to be able to steer and turn that massive weight and keep everything balanced. Um, if you remember, we talked about the different uh, types of foci you can use. One was the prime focus. That's up here. There actually is an observing cage up here. Don't know if it's still used, but it had been in the past that an observer could actually sit there and ride with the telescope. Five-meter telescope, I'm, I'm, you know, width of a person, you could put a decent-sized cage up there and you're not going to block a lot of the light. So there actually are instruments and there are observing cages that you can observe from the prime focus in a telescope like this. But for three decades, until the late 1970s, this was the largest telescope in the world. Now, this little five-meter telescope is going to start to look small compared to some of the ones that astronomers are, uh, have built and are currently building. They are very creative in their names. This is the very large telescope. You can guess, it's a big telescope. It's got eight meter mirrors compared to five meters. So not twice as big, but still pretty large by comparison. This is down in the deserts, desert mountains of Chile. So it's down there. This is, there's actually four telescopes together. So each of them has an eight meter mirror, much larger than Palomar, many times larger than Hubble. We'll talk about Hubble a little later when I talk about space telescopes, but Hubble's mirror is about 2.4 meters. So this is, these are many times the size of Hubble, meaning if we can get our active and adaptive optics working properly, which they do, and these do use that, you can easily crush the resolution of the Hubble Space Telescope, or at least match it. I mean, you're not going to get rid of everything, but these can observe just as well as something up in space. And Trying to launch an eight-meter mirror in space, it's a pretty big mirror. How do you launch something eight meters in size? You can. We'll actually look at that when we get to space telescopes as well with the uh, James Webb Telescope is going to be, I don't remember the exact size, but something similar to that. It is much larger. But the Hubble Space Telescope was designed at 2.4 meters because that was the biggest size that would fit in the shuttle's cargo bay. I mean, the shuttles, and they were designed together. They fit. That when you launch that, the Hubble Space Telescope just perfectly fit inside the cargo bay. That was it. You couldn't have made it 2.8 meters. It wouldn't have fit. How would you be able to launch it? At the time, the shuttle was our launching uh, device, and the only thing that could get anything that large up there. So this one's been running since 2000. This is almost two decades old now. There's the Large Binocular Telescope. And guess how that got its name? It's got two telescopes together. These are very similar in size to the last ones, 8.4 meters uh, from 2004, and two telescopes that can look out like a pair of binoculars. And in some things like this, you can actually combine the signals together so you can observe the same object, just as you do with a pair of binoculars. But what are binoculars except two telescopes, right, joined together? You look one through this eye and one with this eye, and you put those signals together, and you can therefore simulate a much larger telescope. It's a lot easier to build an 8.4-meter mirror than it is to build a 16-meter mirror. So this is one example of that where that, is, where that is done. And you put two telescopes together and combine the signals together. So look at the same object at the same time. And you can put that signal together and kind of simulate that you're using a much bigger telescope than you really are. We talk about radio telescopes in a little bit. This is one thing that radio astronomers do quite a bit. They build lots of telescopes, scatter them around, and then simulate much larger telescopes. Getting a little bigger, now we're up to twice as big as the Palomar Telescope, the Gran Telescopio Canarias, is completed in 2007, has a 10-meter mirror. So that's pushing, what, 32, 33 feet across? I mean, that's a, I mean you're talking mirrors that are bigger than this room. You could not fit that whole mirror within this room. We also get to the point where it's almost too large to build a single mirror, and they start to build them in segments. You can do little honeycomb segments and then stick them together, right? Honeycomb, like a bee's honeycomb, all hexagonal, and you can stick them together and make a, make a much larger mirror out of smaller pieces. Makes it a lot easier. It's a lot easier to build a bunch of one-meter mirrors build dozens of those than it is to build one 10-meter mirror. And you can imagine trying to, how do you transport something 30? I mean, 10 meters across, you know, that's taken up a large stretch, and there's, how are you going to get that to where you need it? 
almost gets to be the point where you just can't build, well, you could build it, how are you going to transport that to where you want to go? Very, very large objects. So uh, when we start looking at these largest ones, they don't make a single mirror. They make a bunch of little mirrors, which makes some nice things that if something goes wrong, right, in your mirror process, the mirror cracks, if you lose your 10.4 meter mirror, you're out of luck and you've got to start over again. If you lose one piece, well, one piece can be replaced. You can have an extra piece, take, take a piece out, put a new one in, and your telescope is still working. The largest one, as I said, they're very, this is, well, it used to be called the European Extremely Large Telescope. Now it's just the Extremely Large Telescope to differentiate it from the Very Large Telescope. So this is even bigger. Uh, projected to be completed in 2025, and I just double-checked that this morning. That is still when they're projecting it to be completed. Uh, this is going to be almost a 40-meter mirror. Segmented, so this is in different segments. There's no way. I mean, 40 meters, you're talking almost half the size of a football field. I mean, from center to end zone, that's about, that would be, that would be you know, 40 yards 50 yards would be from, you know, goal line to midfield. This is very close to that size. Now, how can you possibly build and transport something that tremendous in size? Except in pieces. So you would have to build it in pieces, and then they are trans transported, and then you put the whole thing together down here in the, in the end. And this is, uh, construction is working on it right now. This is not, of course, an image. This is an artist's conception, you know, conception drawing of what will be there when it is done. But almost a 40-meter mirror, many times, you know, 10, we're talking no, not close, not quite 20 times the size of Hubble. So extremely, extremely large, which is how you get its name. Yeah? Where are they building that? Um... You know, I was going to double check that, and I completely forgot to. I don't remember where that is off the top of my head. I'd have to. I don't believe that one is. I have to. I can double off to double check it after. Yeah, there was a lot going on with that. I don't think this was the one, but I don't. I mean, this is the European one, so I'm guessing not. I mean, it could be, but it is done by a European consortium. Doesn't mean it's in Europe, it could be elsewhere. The Europeans have a lot down in South America and Australia, so it's not that they can't put one on Hawaii, but I'm guessing Hawaii one would be more associated with that. But I, I can look that up after, maybe while you're checking lab. I don't want to spend the time. But, but yeah, it is, a very, it is the largest one uh, currently planned. So where do we put the telescopes? There are a couple of things we want to look at. You know, where we put telescopes 100 years ago it's really different than where we want to put telescopes now. A hundred years ago, we put the telescopes where the astronomers were, right? So if you had, you know, Harvard University would have its telescope outside of Boston, right? UCLA might have its telescope outside of Los Angeles. You know, talking hundreds of years, big deal, right? Uh, University of Chicago was a big one, had its telescopes right outside of Chicago. In terms of brightness of the sky, those are horrible places to put a telescope right now. So one of the things we want to do now is not put them near a city. So we tend not to put them. That's why the one, the Gran Telescopio Canarias, is out in the Canary Islands in the Atlantic Ocean, well away from anything. We put a lot out in Hawaii. There are a lot, as we mentioned there, there's a lot of telescopes up on Mauna Kea because it's pretty dark. Yes, you've got some cities of Hawaii, but other than the cities in Hawaii, guess what? You're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's pretty dark. And when you're up on top of the mountains, you actually are well above a lot of the stuff there. So you want to avoid the cities. And in fact, a lot of, a lot of telescopes have been moved. Telescopes that used to exist in cities that just really wouldn't work right now are moved to better sites. So it's actually, you know, even though the expense of moving a decently sized telescope could be a lot, it's actually better to move it to a darker site and a site with better weather Right? If you want to put a telescope here, you know, what is our weather like? How many clear nights do you get a year? You know, 75, 100. I'm just trying to throw off some random numbers, but some, probably something like that. If you go down to the Arizona deserts or the deserts down in Chile, you might get 250 or 300. You might get two or three times more clear nights around there than you're going to get, say, around Chicago or around in, or any, other, any other large city. So we want clear weather. 
telescopes, especially the optical telescopes we're talking about, are no good when it's cloudy, rainy. Right? If it's cloudy, we can't see anything. We can't use the telescope. So it doesn't have a tele- any good to put a telescope someplace, even if it's convenient for the astronomers, where you can't use it all the time. So we don't want dark, we want, we want dark skies. We want good weather. We want to get rid of water vapor. We don't want to be near the water. Water vapor absorbs some of the light, especially the reds and into the infrared part of the spectrum. Water vapor is really good at absorbing that. So we tend to put them away from uh, water. Of course, I've just talked to you about the Canary Islands and Hawaii. Those are right in the middle of oceans. However, when you're up on top of a mountain, Mauna Kea is very dry. When you get up that high up in the atmosphere, you're above all of the water vapor. So even if you're sitting in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, it's very dry up there. Yeah? I actually want to say I've been on top of Mauna Kea. Okay. And it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's dry. It's, it's like a desert, essentially. The mountains down in Chile, same way. Ones that they use. Very, very dry. So even though you're in the middle of the ocean, it's not like you're... If you, now, if you tried to put this down in Pearl Harbor area or something down, then, it would not, then you'd have all the water vapor around and it would not work. But when you're up on top of those mountains that high, yeah, it's great. So good, thank you. And we want to, why do we do mountains? You want to get above the atmosphere. If you can get a mile up in the atmosphere, hey, that's great. That's that much atmosphere and that less thick atmosphere you're getting above and you don't have to look through. So these are just some of the things that we want to look at, you know, get good weather. So this is why we build telescopes in certain places. Arizona deserts on the mountains there, really big one. Mauna Kea in Hawaii, down in the deserts of Chile. So tends to be in mountainous areas, getting them high up above the atmosphere and desert areas, getting away from water, getting relatively clear skies most of the time. So, finishing up here um, on optical telescopes, what do we use a telescope for? Again, reviewing from last time, gather light and bring it to a focus. I talked about the three powers, light gathering, resolving, and magnifying. Um, These two being more important, magnifying being the least important because it's the easiest to change. And the modern telescopes, some of the ones that we looked at, the mirrors are a lot thinner, and they're much larger than telescopes we had. You know, 50, 50 years ago, the largest telescope in the world was the Palomar Telescope. We are now working on ones that are many five times, almost five times that size. All right, questions? All right, well, let's go ahead on to detectors, because... Right? You want to observe, but you, have to be, you want to be able to record your observations as well. So earliest observations were, um, our earliest, earliest detector was the human eye. Right? Things like Galileo. So we're talking about telescope detectors. What did Galileo do? Well, he looked at the telescope and he drew the, drew the images of the moon. We were to try a project like that. We had a nice, uh, we were here on a dark night. You saw a nice image of the moon. Had everybody look at a telescope, look at it through a telescope and draw images of it, right? We've got seven here today. So we'd get seven different. They'd all look slightly, you should see some features that recur, but nobody's is going to look exactly the same, right? Even Galileo's from time to time, you know, features look a little bit different. You know, what you see on one image is a little bit different than what you see on another. So there are some slight differences between these. You know, how big is this? Well, maybe one's a little bigger, one's a little smaller. There's a lot of subjectivity to it. So when the advance became, when we had ways to be able to record this, and the first of those was what we call a photographic plate. So a photographic plate looks something like this. Right? piece of glass with a photographic emulsion on it. Right? Years ago, you used to use film. Right Now everything's digital, but you used to use film, which was a piece of plastic with a photosensitive photo material on it. This is similar, except it's a piece of glass, maybe about six inches on a side, <coughs> that was photosensitive, and you'd expose that to the light, and that would record your image. They're always negatives, so any bright object, these dark objects would be stars or nebulae or galaxies, and the light areas would be the dark part of the sky. So the light coming would expose and make it darker. So it was a negative, just like when you took an image with the camera, you developed the negatives, 
and that would be, they would be a negative image, and then they, you could invert them when you actually made the positive prints. Uh, so this is one way to be able to do it. The problem is, I mean, it's great because now everybody sees the same thing. If you're pointing out a star to somebody, well, there it is, and it's this far away from the other star. We can measure that, and we're going to get very close to the same value. But they're inefficient in that they only, they only record about 1% of the light. It's only 1%. They're not that sensitive. That's great for bright objects here, right? Photographic, uh, when we used film, photographic emulsions were fine because 1% of the light that you're getting on a relatively bright area is plenty of light to be able to see the image. When you're trying to detect very faint stars, only getting one photo, only detecting one photon in 100 is really not good. You're not able to see things as faint as you otherwise would. But it's still a permanent record that everybody can see the same. The other problem is that they're, they're hard to store. First of all, it's a piece of glass, so you don't want to trip while carrying it. Right? Shatters, it's gone. Um, and it's harder to share the data. Oh, sorry, difficult to store. They also need to be kept. You know, like anything else that's photographic like that, they need to be kept under climate-controlled conditions. So you have to have a certain humidity, certain temperatures. You can't just leave them sitting around. They have to be kept under climate-controlled conditions. But this is still a lot of our data it goes back this way. Yes, there's digital methods now, but we have observations that go back um, into, well, some of the very earliest in the 1800s, but a lot of the 1900s for decades' worth are recorded on plates like this that we still have. It's also harder to share the data, right? We get used to instant sharing now. Right? You see something, you want to send it to a friend, you can text it to them across the country, around the world, and they get it immediately, right? How do you share this kind of thing? Well, you either have to ship it to somebody to look at it or have them come to you to be able to look at it. So harder to share data as well. So what we use now, similar to what you use in a digital camera and your phones, is a charge-coupled device, or CCD, which looks something like this. So that's actually what's inside that records the image. This little area here has a whole bunch of little, little pixels that are sensitive to light, that will record light. And in fact, what they do is when the light strikes them, they produce an electron, they, they free an electron, and the electron gets stuck in one of those pixels, and then you count it. So you record all of those in there, however many are on each little pixel there. When you talk about, you know, megapixel, something that's 8 or 10 or 12 megapixels, just means how many millions of little squares are within this area. Much more sensitive. Actually, they can get 60 to 70% of the light many times better than a, a photographic plate. 1% versus 60 to 70, you're doing 60, 70 times better. You're able to see much fainter objects. So that's the kind of thing that we use, that we use now, and astronomers have been using these, uh, started using them back in the maybe late 70s, early 80s. So long before uh, you know, digital photography took off, um, so they've been using them for a little bit longer time. There are some problems with them as to early on, you know, how big can you make it? That digital plate, that plate was a good size. You could get a large chunk of the sky. Here you've got to take a bunch of individual little images and put them together. Because you can't, or at least not at that time, you couldn't build a CCD that was six inches on a side. So if astronomers wanted to record a big chunk of the sky, surveying the entire sky, you needed lots of these images compared to with, with the plates, you could just take one big image of the sky. Um, how does it work? Well, I explained a little bit. The light will strike the surface and produces an electron. That's then stored. When you're done, all of the little material around here, that's this light sense of all these little lines in there, etched in there, are the ways to read out the electrons. So you read them out and count how many electrons. There's one electron, five electrons, 10 electrons in each area. The more electrons, the brighter that portion of the image. So that's essentially what your phone does when you take an image with it. It's counting all the electrons within that and turns them into an image for you. How many electrons were there at each section? Uh, large CCDs can have things like hundreds of megapixels. 
So you can get some very, very large ones that are used with the telescopes, but that's still not, not going to be as large as a photographic plate was able to cover a large chunk, chunk of the sky. And of course, it's all digital, right? Again, we, we're used to that today, but that's modern. That's, you know, decades ago, that was not how things could be done. So you can analyze it and share it immediately. So an astronomer can take a picture, might be a half an hour exposure, you know, they're taking, looking deep, trying to see very faint objects, and can see how it came out right away, right? Just as you can now. Take your pictures, we take pictures, what do you do first thing? You look at it, oh, it, came, it didn't come out good, let me take it again. You know, years ago, that wasn't how it was. You took your vacation pictures, you came back, and you hoped they came out well. You didn't know what they would look, what they would look like. Back in the 70s or something, you know, you would have taken your pictures. Some might have come out well, some may not have come out so well. The other thing that we use in addition is uh, kind of spect spectroscopy. We talked about that in the last chapter. And spectroscopy is splitting the light into its component colors. There's the prism, so light comes through, focused onto the prism, that splits all the light up, and we can observe the spectrum. You can record that with a photographic plate. You can record that with a CCD and study that image. And again, just kind of reviewing what we looked at, this is where we're really learning about a lot of things about the star, how it's moving, what its composition is, what its temperature is. So we can learn all sorts of things by looking at the spectrum. And that is something that is used with large telescopes. There are a number of ways to do it. You can look at individual objects looking at just one object. You can also put this prism in front, of the, in front of the telescope. There's an adapter for some telescopes. You can put it right in front, and you can take a spectrum of the entire area of the sky that you're doing. So it essentially splits everything. So if you're looking at hundreds of stars, you can split, get spectra of hundreds of stars immediately. Not in as fine detail as we looked at with the sun, but you can get basic information from them and getting basic information on a wide variety of, of objects at one time. All righty, so finishing up this section, again, I talked about the detectors. We really want some way to make a permanent record, whether it's drawing them by hand, whether it's photography, CCD, spectra, uh, spectra something that makes a permanent record that we can review, uh, using CCDs, charge-coupled devices, that's pretty much all modern telescopes are using that. Anything built within the last couple of decades are using these, and anything older has been converted to be able to use them. Uh, plates can still be used in certain situations where you really want that wide field view of the sky. So there are some regions where they're still actually useful, uh, but most of everything is digitally recorded, and in fact, even the, the plates that exist, there are big projects to digitize them. Because, you know, what if something happens? If you've got plate storage and you've got thousands and thousands of plates, you've got them at Harvard College Observatory, other large observatories, well, a fire, they're all gone. All that information is gone. So there is work undergoing to digitize, scan all of those to record that data. All right. Questions? Yeah. All the data? Um, they would have a, b a bunch of, you know, yeah, a bunch of, just like we have you know, master drives here, hard drives that faculty can access for storage, data storage. They do the same kind of thing. They'd have, you know, massive data storage facilities to be able, because, you know, these images are not just, you know, a couple, couple megabytes, tens of, you know, you're talking, when you're getting some of these large ones, they are tremendous in size. Yeah, but it would be, I mean, there would be some, I mean, the university would have them, NASA would have some that would just store all of the data so, you could, so that astronomers would be able to access. Yeah. Good. Others? All right, well, I'm going to try to get a start on radio telescopes, and then we'll, I'll break for lab in a little bit. So radio telescopes, and then next time we'll talk about space telescopes. We'll talk about those on Monday. But radio telescopes were the second type of telescope to be developed. 100 years ago, 90 years ago, yeah, about 90, yeah, about 90 years, through about 90 years ago, maybe about 85 years ago, this, uh, optical telescopes that we talked about were it. 
That was, that was astronomy. There was no difference between optical astronomy and any of the other kind because we had no other ways to observe the universe. But the development and understanding of radio waves was something else that we could use because radio waves, if you remember, those are one of the ones that penetrate the atmosphere and that we can see from the ground here. So they're another type of radiation that gets through the atmosphere. And this now gives us a new view on the universe. Things that emit radio waves don't necessarily emit visible light. If you remember our picture from today, we had that darker area. It didn't give off a lot of visible light. But if you looked at that with a radio telescope, it would be glowing. It would be giving off different types of radio radiation. What I want to differentiate between are radio waves and sound waves. We sometimes get those mixed up. Radio waves are not sound waves. In fact, radio waves are passing through us right now. Radio waves from the sun, they're passing right through us. We can't hear them. You can't hear a radio wave. It is a piece of electromagnetic radiation, just like visible light. So you can't hear a radio wave. Now, you can encode information on a radio wave, which we do. So you can take radio waves, and you can adjust their frequencies slightly. FM radio is modulation of radio. So you, you encode the sound into the radio wave, but the radio wave is not sound. By modifying its frequency, you can adjust that. You can adjust the amplitude of the waves. So you modulate the amplitude, amplitude mod modulation, AM radio. So it just depends on how you're adjusting the waves. And you can encode that, so the transmitter encodes it and broadcasts it out. You can't hear it, right? Your ear does not pick up those radio waves, even though there's lots of radio waves passing through us right now. But your receiver can pick that up. You tune it to the right frequency, right, uh, right frequency, then you can pick up those waves. And then your radio can convert them back into sound waves that you hear. So you can encode information on the radio waves, but you can't listen. You can't listen to them directly. So just wanted to specify that. Um, looking at the early ones, this is actually the earliest radio telescope. It doesn't look anything like the one I showed you there. This was done by Carl Jansky back in the 1930s. And looking at, not, not looking for, not, not an astronomer, an engineer studying radio communications. So he had built telescopes to be able to help communicate and study the different sources of noise that we had. And one of the things that he found was a radio source that he kept detecting, and it appeared four minutes earlier every day. Now, if it was here on Earth, something associated with the Earth, you should see it at the same time every day. If it was just some natural radio source, this, if you remember, four minutes is the difference between the solar day, our day that we use, and the actual rotation period of the Earth. So objects in the sky will rise four minutes earlier each day. So he was actually detecting the first radio waves from space with this antenna. This is not his act. This is a reproduction of his antenna that's been made. Um, his original one is no longer exists. Um, but because that, that was the sidereal period, rotation relative to the stars. And he was actually detecting the center of our galaxy. Center of our galaxy is the brightest radio source in the sky. However, if we look at it optically, if you go out at night right now after sunset and look to the south, other than seeing the bright lights of Baltimore and D.C., right down that general direction, the galactic center is not that far over the horizon. You don't see anything big, bright, and glowing there. If you look at a radio telescope, it would be the brightest thing you see. But we don't see it with visible light. So it's a completely, again, it's a completely new window on the universe because we're seeing things that we can't see for various reasons. Some objects only give off radio waves. Some, like our galactic center, gives off lots of visible light. But there's so much material between the center and us that it's like looking through a wall. Right? I, could put a, I could put a big spotlight beam right on the other side of this wall blaring at us. We're not going to see it. You can have that much material scattered out over light years that blocks out the light. So when we try to look at our center, center of our galaxy with visible light, we see nothing. It's essentially not there. We know it is. We can make other types of measurements. But radio astronomy, we detected our galactic center back in the 1930s with something like this, which looks more probably like a giant old antenna than the radio telescopes that we use today. So some of the things that we see, and I show that I'll come back to this in a little bit,
um, or next time, I should say. Uh, this is actually what we call the Crab Nebula. Crab Nebula is a supernova remnant, so it's a star that exploded long ago. And if we look at it in visible light, it looks something like this, remnant of an exploded star. But if we look at it in radio or infrared or ultraviolet or X-rays or gamma rays, it looks rather different. We see some differences, for example, in the X-ray image is much more concentrated to the center. The X-rays are being emitted from a much, uh, source much closer in. If you look at the ultraviolet and infrared, they're a little smoother than the knots that we see in the visible light. The radio, the brightest regions are the red or towards the center, whereas we tend to see brighter knots around the edges here. So we're seeing different things. We're getting different parts of it. And it kind of gives you a more complete understanding by, able to, by being able to do this, to understand objects at different wavelengths. So what can we study? Well, the molecular clouds. That's what we were looking at, that dark area down to the lower right of our image for the day that we looked at. That was part of a molecular cloud. It doesn't give off visible light. It does give off radio light because it's much cooler. Or you can also look at very energetic objects. This is a supernova remnant. At the center of it, down in here, is a very compact star. It emits a lot of energy, spinning very rapidly, gives off a lot of high-energy electrons. When those are accelerated, they give off a certain type of radio waves. So the radio waves that are coming from that are still are seen, are seen as well. So it's not just very cool objects, but it's also energetic objects. So it's a way, it's going to be our first look at some of the ways of getting a complete view of the universe. And I'm going to stop there to give you enough time to work on lab, and I will pick up with radio astronomy and space astronomy. We'll work on those on Monday and then move off on to talking about the sun. Any questions? Other questions? Okay. Help me. I remembered.